Who Gets to Decide, a liberty-based podcast that brings a little piece of sanity to a confused society drowning in a culture of craziness. And here is your host, Seth Martin. All right. Hello, 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 everybody, and welcome to another episode of Who Gets to Decide. This is Seth Martin, your host. Thank you for joining me this evening. Glad you're here. Happy you're listening. Well, I I ran across a a clip the other day of a guy named Stanley Druckenmiller, um, who was on um, something called Delivering Alpha. I think Delivering Alpha is a is a seminar or a conference that's uh, sponsored by CNBC, like Squawk Box and Squawk on the Street and people like that. And uh, anyway, the the interview. Uh, I mean, you hardly ever really get to see Stanley Druckenmiller uh, speak about the markets, the economy, the Fed. Um, these things are critically important. I know I harp on some of this stuff, but I think we're coming to a time where, where this is going to be uh, the way uh, we handle the next problem is going to be very critical to each and one, each of our futures. And um, in other words, you know, the last several financial crises we've, we've solved by quote unquote solved. It's, I'm, I'm doing air fingers quotes. Uh, by bailing out entities. And one, I don't think this is going to be an option next time. And two, uh, it could mean a, a real collapse in um, uh, the U.S. dollar and at least at least uh, loss of the uh, reserve currency, the international reserve currency. In other words, there might be a new, there might, and maybe that's what this great reset is all about, you know, that the World Economic Forum is always talking about. I'm not entirely sure, but um, certainly uh, we could see a loss in the reserve currency status, and that would, that would usher in some sort of new global financial agreement uh, between countries in order to promote trade and things like that. Uh, right now, because of the uh, dollar reserve currency status, uh, all these international settlements, uh, the Bank of International Settlements and things like that, that's all done in U.S. dollars. Only about 10% is done outside the U.S. dollar. So the reason, the reason I'm giving you all this background is because I, th- I think if, if, there's a, if there's a loss in the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency, there's two things I want to say about that. One, that's going to be very harmful to everyone's standard of living, living in the United States. Uh, you just don't realize um, what, what an advantage that gives us uh, in, in the United States. And I'm not just talking about a financial advantage. I'm talking about all this crazy stuff that we're doing in the U.S. that wouldn't wouldn't otherwise exist without the Federal Reserve and the U.S. dollar standard. Secondly, and most importantly, maybe, is some new uh, financial instrument that's going to be used for international settlements will come out of this uh, conference. Uh, now, some of you may know, some of you might not, not might not know. The way we got the reserve currency was after World War II. Uh, the United States obviously wasn't uh, destroyed, but most of Europe was where the rest of the developed world was. And <clears throat> basically, uh, 
there was nothing being produced in those places. Um, uh, we had all the gold. And so the major countries got together and decided that, uh, that international uh, trade would be settled in U.S. dollars, but that the U.S. would continue to back those dollars with gold. Um, that was the agreement. Of course, later on in 19, August 1971, we reneged on part of that agreement. We reneged on the part where we could, we would, we would uh, uh, trade U.S. dollars for gold. So, like if you had a twenty-dollar bill and you took it to a bank, they used to you used to be able to get a twenty-dollar gold piece, and that ceased to exist after August 1971. Well, actually, after 1930. Three, I think, but but for countries, for international settlements, you could still do that. You could still, you could still take your reserve dollars and trade them in for gold, and that was revoked under the Nixon administration in 1971. And of course, ever since then, the dollar has been unhinged, uh, literally not not connected to anything, just uh, everybody's willingness to accept it. So, these could be. Uh, very difficult times for uh, us in the United States, but but also people around the world. So um, the reason I want to bring attention to this is because I would like to see the Federal Reserve dissolved and done away with, and go back to some sort of uh, some sort of commodity standard or even Bitcoin, something that can't be created. Uh, out of thin air by the government because that is that is uh, that is stealing from um, from each of us and this is what I talk about when I talk about dishonest money. So without further ado, let's uh, let's jump over to Delivering Alpha with uh, with Stanley Druckenmiller and let's listen to what he has to say about some of these things. But I was just um, incredibly frustrated with what to me looked like a, a Fed that was just taking unbelievable risks. For what? Um, the story at the time was inflation was 1.7, and we were buying 120 billion bonds a month. This was post-vaccine, successful vaccine, um, because inflation was 1.7 instead of 2. So we're taking this massive gamble um, where you threaten 40 years of credibility with inflation and you're blowing up the wildest raging asset bubble I've ever seen. And I knew that the worst second economies happened post-asset bubbles. The 30s here, post-89 in Japan, after the housing bubble blew up here. So he's talking here about the risk that the Fed is taking. And what he's, what he's driving at is we were buying 120, I say we, the Fed was buying $120 billion in bonds every month with money created from nothing, okay? And then that money was going to the Treasury. The bonds are, are issued by the Treasury. And the Fed was going into the market and buying the bonds. So the money then flows into the Treasury, right? That's how it works. But he says, for what? We're at, we're at an inflation of 1.7%. And they want to get to two, and so they're doing all this crazy monetary policy. In fact, that's what we did for uh, eight or ten years with QE. 
We just bought the, again, we, I didn't, the Federal Reserve bought with money made from nothing, bought $100 billion a month in bonds and mortgage bonds, mortgage backed, I don't think they bought mortgage backed securities, but uh, mortgage bonds, uh, I I don't even know what all they bought. They bought a bunch of different financial assets and held them on their balance sheet. And, And what Stanley is driving at is, is the risk to reward ratio. You know, what, what is the risk of continuing to buy all these bonds versus the reward? And of course, the reward in this case would be the movement of the inflation rate from 1.7 to 2%. But the risk is you're buying over time trillions of dollars worth of bonds. You're issuing new money that ends up in the economy and you're measuring price inflation. Now, if you'll recall, uh, I've talked about on this program, inflation is the actual act of increasing the money supply and credit. It doesn't, the price inflation is, is, a, is a symptom of the act of inflating the, the currency. Does that make sense? I mean, in other words, price inflation doesn't just happen <laughs> it happens because the Federal Reserve creates more money and puts it into the economy. So, you know, Stanley is 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 right. He's talking about the risk reward, but he's but I'm I'm taking it a step further and just saying this is not this is crooked. Okay, this is not uh, a fair money system. Uh, who gets that money? Well, who gets to use it first? Well, Congress gets to use it first. And then it kind of trickles around and sloshes around in the economy. And, and then, you know, maybe six months or a year later, you and I get to use the money. So whoever gets to use it first gets the most value for it, right? Because if prices haven't adjusted yet, then whoever gets the money first, they get the most bang for the buck, so to speak. It, it, just think of it like having a, a, a printing machine in your basement. If you're printing the money and then you're going to lunch and you're going shopping and you know, all this, you're, you're adding new money to the economy. Okay. That, that was just created out of nothing. Nobody produced anything to create the money. Nothing. Well, just think about it. You're getting to use the money first. Prices haven't adjusted yet. So who gets to, who gets to benefit? You do because you're the one that printed the money. So it's the same for the federal reserve, same for the government. If you remember, um, the fed did 2 trillion in QE after vaccine confirmation, and after the time I went on, you had the strongest momentum in employment uh, in history on a rate of change basis. At the same time, their, their partner in crime, the administration, um, was doing more fiscal stimulus, again, post-vaccine, after it was clear emergency measures weren't needed, uh, than we did in the entire great financial crisis. I'm not talking about before the vaccine, I'm talking about after. Yeah, so these these measures that he's talking about, and anytime he me- mentions QE, by the way, that's money printing. Okay, that's the that's the creation of credit and money, new money, new credit in the economy. And uh, he's talking about all these measures happened after the vaccine was released. So, in other words, we we had line of sight. Now you know me about the vaccine. I I didn't take the vaccine. I don't think it was necessary, but just follow the the government's logic okay the government's logic is we have an emergency 
and we need to spend a bunch of money. But this, he's talking about, this was new money and credit created after the vaccines were released. So now we've got, we can see the future, you know, down the road and we know, I'm talking like I'm in the government and we know that uh, people are going to start taking the vaccine and the, and the crisis is going to go away. Right. Oh, but let's just keep printing money. Let's just keep, let's keep creating credit, keep, uh, keep spending money. Um, you know, because I don't know, we're addicted to it. I'm not sure what the reason was. I mean, some of these things are just, you know, once you politically say them, then they just kind of get a life of their own and, and, and they end up being inevitable, I guess. But I think the government and the Fed were both addicted to this behavior. And, and, and what, what's, what's addictive about this behavior? Why would this even be something the government would want to do? Well, if you think about it, for the government to spend resources, for the, for the government to demand resources from the economy, it has to have money, Okay. And there's, there's only a couple places it can get money. It can tax money from the citizens, it can borrow money, or it can print money. Well, obviously, taxing money from the citizens, that's politically dangerous, right? If I'm a politician and I say, look, we're going to have to raise your taxes, sorry, you know, we got to spend some money on these homeless people and this and that, and, you, and all this shit they want to spend money on is something you don't care anything about. Well, guess what? That politician's at risk, right? So the other two options, printing money and borrowing money, are a lot more palatable to, uh, to politicians because spending money is how they, they curry favor and uh, this, is how they, this is how they utilize their power. And, you know, they can't, if they can't tax it, then printing it and borrowing it are the next best thing from their standpoint. The, the move today from, from the Bank of England, the last I looked, I haven't looked you know, in this market, you got to look every two minutes, but it was being received positively, which I thought was pretty shocking. I guess it was the notion that if they blink, maybe we blink sooner than, than people thought. I would have thought this is one of those, you know, you mentioned 30 years ago, this is one of those things where they put a drop in the ocean trying to stop this thing from happening. And you know it's not going to work, probably. And it, it almost indicates maybe there are some underlying dislocations because rates have gone up so fast. Do we need to worry about what happened in England today? And are you surprised that the... the I, th I think it's a microcosm of everything we're talking about. We've had 30 trillion of QE globally over the last 10 years. When you have free money and you have bond buying for that period of time, it creates bad behavior. Okay, so the pension funds and uh, the insurance companies there, buying bonds, repoing, taking the repo money, levering that up with, with equities and all kinds of stuff to try and enhance their returns. And then, and by the way, doing so when gilts are yielding, we're yielding, what, 2.8, and inflation's 10 or 15. That doesn't happen if you don't have the environment created the last 10 years. So you're the Bank of England and you've got this situation on your hands now, which is quite serious, because I think 30% of mortgages there are, or at least 30% are heading toward being variable rate. What do you do? Well, what you don't do is go and take taxpayer money and buy bonds at 4% when your inflation rate is over 10. You don't cure inflation with an inflationary act. And buying bonds 
you know, seven, eight, nine points under the inflation right. rate, of course the markets are cheering it because, you know, they got a Band-Aid, everybody's blinking. But this is creating long-term problems down the road. That 30 trillion has created all sorts of stuff that's probably under the hood. I used this term a week ago, I didn't even know about this thing happening. And you're gonna see more of it because that's what happens during asset bubbles. Behavior changes. I mentioned this news about a week ago or so. Uh, the bank of, There was a run on the Bank of England. The, uh, the uh, pound was just getting destroyed. I mentioned this about a week ago and he's commenting on this. And what he's, the point he's trying to make is, look, um, you, you know, you don't get this kind of behavior in financial markets without 10 years of quantitative easing, you know, bond buying. And, you know, what, what enables this? What, what causes this to happen? And I've mentioned it here on the show many times. I've even mentioned it today. It's dishonest, what I call dishonest money. If I can create money out of thin air or by fiat and I don't have to do anything to earn the money, which is what the government, you know, think of, think of tax money as being something the government has to earn, right? They have to convince you and me that they're taxing us for some greater good, greater, greater even than we could spend the money on. Okay. Now look around at the stuff the government's spending money on. Do you think there's a chance, a snowball's chance in hell, they could be convincing the public that they need to be spending money on the on transgender ideology policy and green energy and battery this and you know green um, climate change that? Hell no. They the only way they can do that is they can print money and borrow it. Those are the only two ways. And so the point, though, with all this is the government doesn't allocate capital properly. You can't have the government in charge of allocating capital. And the reason is, is because at the end of the chain, so think of capital as being the very, the allocation of capital being the very beginning of the process that leads to what consumers want to pay for, what they'll voluntarily pay for. That's a... That's a key point. Voluntarily pay for. That capital allocation begins in the financial markets. And if you intervene there with money that's dishonest, that you can just print up and sprinkle around, well, then all of a sudden you get an intervention into the capital markets that creates a ripple effect that leads all the way to consumer markets. And you've heard me talk about you know, energy policy that we're pursuing will ultimately make us poor. Well, how is that? How is that going to make us poor? Well, it's it's taking money, uh, in this case, printing it, and allocating it to something that people like you and me wouldn't otherwise voluntarily purchase. Okay, and if you expend the resources to produce uh, solar plants, solar power plants, and wind power plants, these things cost hundreds, you know, millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars to develop. And then at the end of the day, when the stimulus cuts off, you and I won't purchase it because it's going to be too expensive. This is what makes us poor. We, all of a sudden now, we have 
sources of energy that the government has intervened into that we have to buy that's more expensive than what we would otherwise choose to buy. And anytime you pay more for something, you pay more for groceries, you pay more for gas, you pay more for anything, you're having to take from money that you would otherwise spend on something else. Well, this is a reduction of standard living. This is what that means. If you, if you have to forego something that you would have otherwise bought because you need to buy something more important like food, well, then that's a reduction in your standard of living. And what he's trying to say here is, you know, none of this stuff, none of this, this financial behavior would exist uh, outside of uh, a phony money system, a phony money system, phony and funny, basically a fiat money system. So I think this is a, 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 a really uh, smart insight. And a lot of guys know this, okay? This is not just Stanley Druckenmiller knows this. This is something that I try to talk about because people, people have this sense of, oh, it's just the government's money. Well, yeah, I mean, not really because it's your money if they tax it. And if they borrow it from you, the, some future you, it's your money in the future, or it's, or it's a reduction in your standard of living if it, if it impacts inflation. So it's really, there's no such thing as the government's money. The government's money is either your money now or your money in the future or your money in the opportunity cost of buying goods on a free market. That's, that's, that's what it is. Recently, you talked about the potential for a 69, 1969 to 1982 potentially type situation for the next 10 years here in terms of the indexes being at the same level a decade from now. Yeah, I, I will say this. The, it's conventional wisdom, which I agree with, that stocks go up over the long term. Okay. We, the problem is we've become a little complacent about what does long term mean. If you bought the Dow in 1929, you got back to even in 1954. As you just pointed out, the Dow was in 1966 where it was in 1982. When I look back at the secular bull market started in 82, let's just take a trip down memory lane. We had a president who said government was the problem, not the solution. We had a guy who fired all the air traffic controllers in the country when they wanted a big raise. We now have a president who is a union man who says he's trying to beat inflation, who cheers a 24% over three-year um, reward to the um, railroad unions. We have a president who thinks government is the solution, not the problem. Um, maybe more importantly, or I'd say in terms of what we're talking about, if you look at valuations back then, the S&P was 50%, um, I'm sorry, the stock market was 50% of GDP. It's now 150 down from 225. That's because five years yielded 15% when I started Duquesne. So real rates were high. That's why we were at eight times depressed earnings. We're now, what, 18, 19 times inflated earnings that I have a very strong feeling are gonna be down next year. Then you have the secular forces. You were right on the initial ramp of globalization a fantastic thing. Um, building supply chains around the world increases efficiency, causes disinflation. 
That was, that's been a trend for 20 or 30 years. Going the other way now, we're disentangling all that. That's going to be inflationary. And then finally, and we've already kind of alluded to it, the last 10 years of the bull market, you put it all in hyperdrive with 30 trillion of QE and zero rates. Now the consequences of that are born, and all those factors that cause that bull market, they're not only stopping, they're reversing. Every one of them. We're going from QE to QT, unless you live in England this week. <laughs> um, they're really unfolding. So when I put all that together, the one thing I, I, I bristle a little about when I hear people on your, on, on your network is they say, well, I'm bearish, but I'm bullish for the long term. Well, there's, there's quite a bit to unpack in this section, uh, but I'm going to try. He, he starts off by talking about 69 to 82. This was a time where we were in a, a long uh, secular bear market. And then Stanley Druckenmiller talks about, uh, you know, 1929, uh, 1989 in Japan. Um, and Japan basically hasn't had a new high in their stock market since 1989. That's, that's extraordinary. Okay. That's, uh, that's the kind of deflation that they've got going on in Japan. And he's basically saying, you know, we could have something similar. Now, one, one of the things, when, when you look at the market, uh, and I'm not going to get too into the weeds, but the market is a fractal. In other words, there are, there, there are short-term trends. There are trends that are like two and three minutes. There's trends that are an hour long. There's trends that are, uh, you know, days long. There's trends that are weeks long, months long, so on and so forth. The, the trend that it looks like is coming to an end uh, started back in, you know, before this country was even founded. <laughs> so it's not just a, the trend since 1929. We're talking about uh, a, a much larger trend that we could be, um, re, we could be re, not reversing, but pulling back from. Okay. And he's right. Generally speaking, the market does go up. And the reason the market goes up is because over time, uh, we become more productive, especially in today's economy. This is, you know, this is like a 200-year effect. I mean, we uh, capitalism. One of the things it does is it is it constantly um, calls on uh, money and labor to become more productive, and over time, this causes uh, the productivity of our society to go up, which is function really, I mean, it's basically what the market tells you. It shows that, that the, the product, the overall average productivity of the country is going up over time. But we could have a serious, uh, you know, pullback from that. And he talks about if you bought the market in, at the bottom in 1929, or if you sold in 1929, uh, or if you held, let's say if you held in 1929, it was 1954, but you, that you got back to break even in the market. Now, what one of the things I things that I study, um, one of the things they say is that this that pullback in 1929, relative to the pullback that we're going to probably experience now, is an is a, a an order of magnitude different. In other words, there's it's a different part of the trend. So this one will be much larger, much larger degree, if you will, and. 
and he's talking about it lasting 10 years, it could actually last 80 years. You know, I mean, we could literally, um, you might not see the highs we've had uh, for 80 years. Now, obviously, inflation and things like that will have a huge impact on that. Um, in, in the modern era, you almost have to look at the stock market relative to something like gold because the market uh, really uh, doesn't ever go down in nominal terms because there's so much inflation, right? But if you, if you were to look at the market in terms of gold, you might not see a new high in the market for you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. So if you just spend just a little bit of time thinking about that, you can you can begin to see how that is going to have huge impacts on our society. You know, things like pension funds and people's ability to retire and save and invest. Um, it's going to have a huge impact on things. So, um, but just remember, none of this, none of this bad stuff really happens um, if you're on some sort of honest money system. And that's the theme that I want to leave people with. At the reversal I just talked about, and you use the CBO estimate, which is rates at 3.8%, which I think frankly is, is pretty optimistic, um, given all the things we've talked about. Um, by 2027, the interest expense alone on the debt eats all healthcare spending. By 2047, it eats all discretionary spending. So we're now getting into fiscal dominance by the way, by 49, it eats also security. We're getting to the point now where the interest expense on the debt is so high that it's going to eat up our ability to basically service the next generation. I'm not even sure about the current one. This is something that most people can't even fathom. The U.S. government has borrowed so much money and continues to borrow money that, at a, at a clip that's just unbelievably excessive, that the to service the debt that we already have by the way this is an this is a, an important point we don't ever pay off any of the debt that we borrow uh, like when you buy a house and you pay on it for 30 years it's your house you own it this is not what the u.s government does what the u.s government does is it borrows money and when those bonds come due they just roll them out they don't ever pay them off they just continue to roll them out they, they rebuy them and, and pay some new investor the interest. But what, what uh, Stanley Druckenmiller is talking about here is he's talking about a crowding out of all fiscal spending of the U.S. government, except for that, which is the interest on the debt. He's talking about how we're going to crowd out all health care expense in, by 2027. I forgot the dates, but we'll, and then shortly thereafter, we're going to crowd out all Social Security, all discretionary spending. So we're, we're going to be a country that is literally spending all of its tax money, at a minimum, uh, on interest for the debt. That's it. For, and, we're not going to, and we're never going to ever come any closer to paying it off. Now, if you think about that for just a second, you, you might start thinking about, okay, what's the point? right? What, what, what is it that, uh, what's the end game there? Well, the end game, uh, eventually, because governments never do the right thing. Well, the first of all, the right thing would be to default on the debt. Okay. And that would mean interest rates from now until a long time from now would be really high for the United States because we're no longer 
um, a, 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 a solid borrower of money. But the other thing it would mean is it would mean that um, you, you're just not going to have all this, this large S anymore. Uh, the government would be forced into a, a smaller box, a much smaller box. And I don't know how many millions of people work for the government, but you're talking about massive, massive layoffs. Millions and millions and millions of people work for the government. And those jobs just simply would not, would not exist anymore. Um, so you're talking about ma- massive disruptions to our, uh, our country. And then there's implications for the dollar, as I talked about earlier. I won't go into that all again, but uh, it could be that the dollar just ends up ceasing to exist at that point. And to me, this is the biggest uh, selling point for something like Bitcoin or gold. You know, gold has been around for 5,000 years. You almost can't go wrong with gold, but gold might not be the thing that we replace the dollar with. The incredible thing about the myopic policies they're running, and I assume it's for the midterms, I can't come, is it's kind of dumb politically because it sets up a bad, bad 24. So maybe the silver lining is we get a crisis that doesn't destroy us, but is bad enough maybe to bring us together and someone comes out of nowhere because we definitely need to change. Half the country hates the other half. Um, we got myopic economic policies, boom-bust policies. You don't really get change unless bad stuff happens to, to catalyze the change. That's what brought in Paul Volcker, G. William Miller, and Arthur Burns preceded him. So as gloomy as I am, um, I'm open to something really great happening out of nowhere that we don't see by catalyzed by something bad. Yeah, before, great. Yeah, by a huge happens. crisis and then something good, good, good well, you know greater what? than we've a, already a, had. 82 was a terrible recession. Everybody yep. says, oh my God, are we going to have a recession? 82 was a terrible recession. First of all, politically, Reagan won 49 states in 84. Secondly, it brought in 20 years of prosperity. In the interest of time, I clipped out the question, but basically Joe Kernan uh, with CNBC is asking uh, Stanley Druckenmiller here, you know, what do you see politically happening? And uh, he talks about, um, he kind of gives some historical facts and really kind of brings up Reagan because he that's when he came of age in the 70s and 80s. Um, and he talks about how uh, the, the recession or depression of the late 70s kind of ushered in Ronald Reagan and we had the largest peacetime expansion ever in the history of the United States. Now, I don't know if that's actually that that last part's actually true or not. I I would say that um, the uh, 18, uh, 1870 to to nineteen ten or nineteen twenty uh, was probably um, more um, more beneficial to the most number of people living in uh, the United States. But nevertheless, he's talking about uh, 1982 and on, uh, the Reagan years, if you will. And one of the things I wanted to bring up here, because I think it's uh, more interesting than, uh, well, it's not more interesting than the market impact on these uh, political uh, these political scenarios, but there's a, there's a, a, a theory or whatever called the socioeconomic 
theory of finance or causality. And a guy named Bob Prechter talks a lot about this uh, with respect to elections and how uh, this socionomic mood can really drive uh, presidential elections and um, uh, sp- specifically pr- presidential elections. And he goes all the way back to George Washington and shows this. And, and the data he presents is stronger than inflation data. It's stronger than any, any other data set that they could come up with. And I, I think this is probably the case. So uh, what Stanley Druckenmiller is talking about here is if, if we have a major recession or worse, uh, luckily, I mean, <laughs> likely, I should say, the Democrats are going to go out and the Republicans are going to get um, the benefit of, of a bad market. Unfortunately for you and me, it's not going to mean much because the Republicans, you know, we've talked a lot about this. They don't seem to um, be grounded in any kind of principle. Uh, presumably they're trying to conserve, you know, tradition, uh, fiscal, um, you know, I don't know, frugality and things like that, uh, conserve, you know, traditional culture. But obviously, I mean, look around, they haven't been able to do any of that. So um, I don't have even a little bit of hope that they'll be able to navigate uh, some major financial crisis. Um, but um, the the good news is uh, they might be a little less inclined to try to respond to it with government. Uh, whereas we were pretty confident, or I'm pretty confident, the Democrats would throw everything but the kitchen sink at some sort of financial collapse in the United States. And really what we need to do is just go back to sound money. We need to go back to an honest money system that um, that uh, it, it trades not as some additional value, but just as a token for goods and services that are that are passed between uh, different market participants. I mean, that's really all the money's there for is just to make it easy to value goods uh, so that we don't have to figure out, well, what's the value of a bag of salt versus the value of, you know, tomatoes. Uh, fortunately, the market does that and money is just a, a measuring stick. It's really not supposed to add or subtract from that uh, market exchange mechanism. But uh, I think he's a little bit optimistic, I guess. I mean, I um, what's what's interesting, I think, about this interview is Stanley Druckenmiller is not even considering that the Fed may entirely go away or that the dollar may cease to exist. I think that's one of the things that's kind of interesting about his his uh, commentary. I mean, in fact, Joe Kernan asks him at some point. And here, maybe I didn't, maybe I clipped it out, but he asked him about Bitcoin and he said he didn't own any Bitcoin at the time. And, um, but he thought, you know, if things got really inflationary, maybe that would be something good to own, but he doesn't currently own it. So I I thought that was interesting. And he doesn't mention really gold or commodity money. He, uh, he really just steers clear of all that. I just, to me, the risk reward of owning assets doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, I'm not advocating going short. The greatest short seller ever, Jesse Livermore, made $100 million in 29, and then he went bankrupt in 36 and killed himself. Did he jump or shoot or what? Did... It wasn't good. <laughs> um, but I don't think you need to short. 
just sidestep it. But to me, the risk reward is difficult right now. I think this is an important segment, albeit short. Uh, but the reward to risk is something you have to uh, approach the market with. You you have to look in terms of probability. And I, I'll give you an example. The market's down about 20% from its highs. So from here, from right here, which we're about 3,900 or so in the S&P 500, is the next, is the next 500 point move, is it going to be up or is it going to be down from here? And I think you have to, that's how you approach the market. Or you might say, let's say you were at highs way back in, uh, you know, back in January and the market was at 4,300. Is it, is it likely that the market's going to go up another thousand points from 4,300 given that we were at highs? Or is it more likely that the market's going to go down? And that's what he's talking about. Although he's, he's, he's bringing in a, an element of what he calls reward to risk or risk reward. And that is a ratio of how much you're willing to risk to get a gain. Okay. So for example, if, if I say, well, you know, I think the market's going to go up 400 points from here. And I look at the market and I think, okay, but in order to, in order to let that play out, I have to take a hundred points worth of risk. Well, then your, your reward to risk is four to one. Okay. So what he's saying is whatever that ratio is, it's not favorable for the bullish case. And that's with a market that's 20 to, at the time of this was recorded, or at the time that uh, Druckenmiller does this interview, the market was down 25%. And he's saying the reward to risk is not there. So I think that's uh, an important insight into you know somebody who has done very, very well in the markets, um, somebody that understands all these elements and admittedly said, look, from time to time, I'm wrong. But when I'm wrong, I can make a correction and I, and I, and I recommit, right? And so um, I, I just thought that was an interesting little clip uh, because most people approach the market with, I'm in all the time because I can't, I, I don't know what's going to happen, right? And what he's saying is, no, that's not a good way to approach the market. You need to approach the market in terms of reward to risk, you know, is, is staying in the market worth the risk that I'm going to take for, you know, whatever upside is available. So anyway, just, just some additional, uh, kind of analysis on what he was talking about there. Well, look, that's, uh, pretty much it for the show today. I think I got one more clip, short clip that I'm going to play, and then we're going to wrap up. Um, you know, look, if you like the show, please share the show. Uh, just trying to grow the audience. I think these ideas are important. I may not be the best at explaining them. I try really hard to um, get a, a, across to people the, the, the underlying principles and why certain things uh, don't work versus how they would work better if we did it a different way. Um, you know, all, all this is not just... It's not just my opinion, you know, I mean, ultimately this show is my opinion, 
but it's based in a lot of stuff that uh, I've read and studied over the years. And um, it's based in what we call Austrian economics. It's based in, um, uh, you know, financial markets, understanding uh, the relationships between bonds and stocks and interest rates and things like that. So uh, hopefully it's helpful to you. If you know somebody it could also be helpful to, please forward them this show, this show in particular, because I think we are literally just weeks away from, you know, a, a serious market event that's going to wipe a bunch of people out. And, you know, I think, uh, I think you, uh, you, you cannot, you cannot be in the middle of an event like that and make good, sound judgments about what you should do with your money. You have to, uh, you have to decide those things up front, and then and then act when it's time to act. And I think that's a that's also in a very important part, uh, very important way to approach the market and your savings. Uh, but if you think somebody could benefit from this this information, from this interview, from what I'm saying here. Please share the show with them, um, and hopefully they'll get something out of it. And if you come back tomorrow, then I'll do it all over again. And that's the position the Fed's got themselves in with basically a boom-bust policy. But yeah, they were not alone. The fiscal stimulus was a huge part of this. But to be fair, they enabled it. Uh, the government can't spend $5 trillion if they don't print it. 